0: Kia ora. I'm Maria, I'm Māori and Pakia,
1: And I'm Kate, and I'm Iranian-Australian. And you're listening to Being Biracial. The podcast all about navigating the world as a biracial person.
0: We want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the unceded sovereign lands of the Boonwurrung and Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation.
1: We offer our respect to the elders of these lands, past, present and those to come, and also acknowledge traditional custodians from the lands where this podcast is reaching you. So I'm gonna take a
2: second So I'm gonna take it slow.
0: This week we are speaking to Shimudro Das about being biracial now, just a little disclaimer at the top of the ep, Shamudro was formerly known as Sarita. So if you hear the name Sarita throughout the episode, we are talking to the same person. <laughs> they just have a new name. Uh, now, Shamudro is many, many, many things. Uh, they are doing a master's in social work at the moment and they're really interested in looking at the intersection between that work as well as sex education in schools. And they're drawing on their previous experience
1: as a sex educator. Kate, you want to take it from here? Uh, They've done a theatre show on colorism previously. All of these things just really excite me and I feel a bit overwhelmed by how many things I want to talk about just from your bio. So thank you so much for joining us today. Kia ora. thank you for having me.
2: Wow, I, you made me sound way cooler than I actually feel, so thanks for that. <laughs>
1: That's
0: truly how cool you are. <laughs> 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 we always kick off the pod by asking, what is your mix?
2: What is my mix? Um, so my dad is from Bangladesh um, and my mom is Pākehā um, and her kakapapa is... Mostly English from England, um, and then I have a tiny portion of um, some Scottish and some Samoan, but very tiny, very very tiny. <laughs> um, and my dad, I think, yeah, his his background is pretty much Bengali, as far as we know. So yeah.
0: How did they meet?
2: My mom went to. Um, She wanted to go to India, but then her her mate got that spot for like missionary work. Uh, And so then she went to Bangladesh instead. Um, And then she was at a, um, she was doing medicine work, um, helping people. And yeah, met my dad at the college and yeah, they fell in love and then had a baby, my brother, and then had me. And, yeah, they kind of traversed some, some stuff being biracial couple in Bangladesh at the time. So, yeah, it was pretty rebellious. So whenever they tell me that I'm being too whatever I am, I'm like, well, where did I get it from? Thanks, guys.
1: I have this theory <laughs> that Maria's heard a 7,000 times that is that if you – like, of course, all of our parents – being from all these random different parts of the world, have to be so rebellious in some way mm. because for so many of them it was really controversial for them to be together at, at that particular yeah. moment in time. So if you're willing to fight for that and and fight for love, then you mm. kind of have to be a rebel, re- rebel in your own way. Yeah. How did both sides of your family feel about your parents being together? Um, I
2: think my white family were <laughs> annoyingly like – enthusiastic (laughs) but like not um oh I yeah so definitely I don't really hang out with my mom's side of the family because they're quite ambivalently racist um (laughs) so like yeah and then my dad's side of the family like they're from a small village in Fenny and they I think this is quite a funny. little anecdote but my dad showed my grandparents a black and white picture of my mom so that they wouldn't know that she was white um because she had dark hair and like I don't know her features are very Caucasian I don't know what he was trying to pull but like I don't know they just were like cool and then she showed up and he made her like well she had to wear a sari because she lived there and she I think she put on a fake like extensions so that her hair would look thick and luscious because to Bangali woman that's what makes you a G so she has quite thin hair so I think she's insecure and so she put in these like thick hair extensions and she would sleep with this bun every night so that they would never know that she didn't have thin ass white lady hair
1: (laughs) wait so did they not know she was white I think they no. of
2: course they knew they just like I think they accepted her because she had this luscious hair
1: (laughs) (laughs) if only it was that easy (laughs) I know
2: but I don't know they've never told me that it was like like they they accepted it so I think it was more that my dad converted to Christianity like he decided to do that before he met my mom and they're Hindus but I think it was more that for them because he's the eldest son and that's quite like you know they have their hopes and dreams for him but um I think it was more that than the fact that he married like a white lady maybe but that could just be my reading of it <laughs> as
1: a child <laughs> yeah how do you feel about your mum being a missionary
2: not good not good at all it's very I've said the words white savior to her so many times <laughs> um but my dad's a missionary too which is weird because it's in his country um they don't like to be called missionaries unless they're in certain circles. They're they're aid workers. <laughs> oh. yeah.
1: A rebrand.
2: A yeah. rebrand, exactly.
1: Are they still quite religious?
2: Yes, very, and not super stoked about all the gay.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh.
0: <laughs> Your facials right now?
1: <laughs> We're very, like, face- <laughs> for a a podcast our faces are exceptionally expressive
2: you're really good I wish people could see your faces you look so blown away
0: (laughs) holy shit so you have like this really intense point of tension with your parents where your values totally Mm. negate or slash undermine maybe their values
2: absolutely And and I think the last time I talked to my dad about gender or sexuality like because we've had ups and downs and he's a bit not reliable with how he reacts so he um his latest one was because I was like non-binary people or queers have existed in the Indian subcontinent since the dawn of time like your their Hindu gods were like exhibit a yes. and very <laughs> very gender fluid so like what's up And then the Kama Sutra is full of sexy gay shit. So um, what's up with that? And then he's like, well, everything from olden times doesn't necessarily need to translate. Like, what if I had 10 wives? Would you be happy with that? (laughs) You know, so it's difficult conversing. But yeah.
1: (laughs) Do they kind of accept your queerness?
2: Not really. No, no. There is a brief stint where they pretended to, but then. I think, not really,
0: yeah. They were just luring you in to convert you. (laughs) Yeah, actually, yeah,
2: probably. (laughs) Although I don't mind that my mom prays for me. I asked her to pray for me the other day because of my assignments. I was like, if you want to pray for me, you can pray for my assignments. And she was like, I pray for you every day.
1: How do you feel about Hinduism?
2: I think I would like to know way more about it than I do. Um, I'm on a small journey trying to figure it out since it's my dad's ancestry that's been they've been hindus since the dawn of time all of his ancestors so that's in my blood and that's part of what makes up my dna um and so yeah i think there's a lot about it that i resonate with like as with a lot of indigenous cultures very connected to the land connected to nature and that's how i feel spiritual i feel spiritual in nature that's the only times i feel connected to this whole thing is in nature. So I guess, yeah, the way that Hinduism embraces and interconnects with the natural world that it's in is where I find that um, in and like that connection. So yeah, I would like to know more about it. Um, But I'm also really terrified because I still have ingrained in me, my parents, like my, like when I was quite young, I think a friend gave me a tiny little, Durga statue or something like that I can't remember who it was either Lakshmi or Durga and um like he just got so angry because in Christianity you cannot have idols but he like grew up with Hinduism you know so how could he hate on it like he probably you know it's probably his Christian brainwashing so it just still kind of scares me because I'm just like oh my god it's bad <laughs> but it's not
0: yeah did you grow up in New Zealand I was born here
2: um, and then I went to Bangladesh when I was nine months old because my parents had a, a vision calling from God. Now, nah, I think my dad was just sick of all the crazy white people here. <laughs> and he was like, woman, we gotta go. We gotta leave. Your relatives are driving bananas. We've been here for four years and I cannot handle them talking to me like I'm an idiot. Um... <laughs> Uh, And then I went to, so I lived there in Bangladesh till I was eight. And then I went to boarding school in India for middle school. And then I went to high school in Thailand. And that's why I sound like this, because it was American. And I haven't shaken the accent. And then I came here for uni. And then I went to Australia to work. Um, and then I came back here and I'm here now.
1: <laughs> Why did you get sent to India for boarding school? Let's start with that. It's a, it's a really
2: convoluted story, which our family like does not agree on. Um, my parents say that I asked to be sent because my brother had already gone before me um, and I missed him, which I probably did. But do you do everything an eight-year-old tells you to do? Like, I want ice cream for dinner all the time. Give it to me. <laughs> Um, but I think the reality of it was that they wanted me to have a good education and good being, uh, Western. Um, and so it was a very, like, if I think about it now, pretty privileged private school.
1: How did you navigate your identity stuff in an Indian (laughs) context?
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Good question.
1: Yeah, Yeah. next question. (laughs) In fact, I I did not.
2: (laughs) I did not. I still have not. I'm still doing.
1: (laughs) Did people in your boarding school think you were Indian? I guess is what I'm asking.
2: Oh, I have no idea. Because I was so young. Like, I feel like I grew up with so many mixed race kids at that age. I was actually talking to my brother about this the other day on the phone and we were like, you know what, we were pretty, I think the reason why we are the way that we are, which is like quite understanding of people's differences and blah, 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 is because we were surrounded with kids who are so different from each other. Um, But there was a lot of Indian kids there, but they wouldn't have thought that I was Indian because I wouldn't, I don't speak Hindi Um, But I don't think anyone spoke their own languages. I think we all spoke English at boarding school, like with various accents. I vaguely remember like the Korean students speaking in Korean, but then everybody else, I think, was speaking in English.
1: But that's kind of nice that you grew up around so many mixed race kids.
2: Yeah. But then
1: I kind of forgot what that
2: felt like after that, because then the rest of my life was. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, talk to us about going to Thailand. What was that like? And why Thailand? Um, Why Thailand? I got kicked out of boarding school. (laughs) Okay, let's ask that question. How did you deal with your identity? I see. see.
2: Um, I think I was politely asked to leave boarding school. There was like, I, I was. I think it's kind of why I became a social worker. Is like because I would always like try and get shit done for other people that like were being disadvantage and then I would get in trouble because I'd be the one talking and speaking up for people and for myself and then the teachers don't like that and so they don't know what to do with it so they just don't want you there like arbitrary rules like I wasn't doing drugs or anything like that I was like 15 I was just like why are these rules here why do we have to do them is it okay if we do something else no okay
1: so you get kicked out of boarding school and then you end up in Thailand
2: Yeah. So I was supposed to, my mom promised me we would go to, this is like a therapy session. This is great. I don't even paying you for this. My mom promised me that we would be a family and would live together in Bangladesh. But again, I think they wanted me to have a uh, a Western good quote unquote education. So there was a new school semester starting in Grace International School in Thailand. And um, that was... um, a good time but a complicated time like there was this one other south asian girl in the entire school and we avoided each other like the plague we just pretended like each other did not exist and i wonder if you guys like know what i'm talking about like that feeling of like being the token brown person but nobody else can challenge you (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, you're like, I gotta hold my ground with all these yeah. all these w- white people because I grew up in a bagel. Yeah. I was like, I gotta yeah. hold my space and nobody's out nobody else is allowed in my space is a token brown friend mm. who's actually pretty warm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I was super assimilated. Exactly. Yeah. But- what about you? Okay.
1: <laughs> uh there was there were two other biracial girls in my high school and we weren't friends. Mm. <laughs> It's a longer. It's a longer story. though, about a, st- a stealing of a costume in a, a high school musical, but um, a part. Apart exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Weirdly, not nah, did not did not spend much time with them. I think later in life, at uni, for instance, I started having some mm. Persian friends, and mm. that that was amazing. But I think earlier on. I felt too much imposter syndrome to be friends with Iranians because I felt like I wasn't Iranian enough, mm-hmm. and that like That's, no uh, no yeah. one could clock me, but they yeah. would 100% clock me.
2: Mm. And if you get clocked, you have to suddenly know about being Iranian. Exactly. Because, but who knows how to do that? So
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, how did you make the choice? after all of this weird school experience, <laughs> to to end up in Australia and New Zealand? What was the how – did, how did that come about?
2: I was born here, so that was quite easy because then you get student assistance to go to uni. Um, and I guess I had some family here. But, yeah, that was about it. Um, and I went to Australia in search of better things. Um, ended up working – in a bunch of random shit jobs and ended up working for I'm sure you know about this very problematic store but this is one of the turning points of my life honey brudette do you know about them
1: I actually don't (laughs) either okay
2: they're quite controversial like they um they're a luxury lingerie and sex toy store and it sounds amazing and it sounds like dream you know like such a good place to work because you'd be educating people on toys and orgasms and talking to like it was mostly women who'd come in talking to women about um you know like how toys can benefit like your personal sex life with yourself like not necessarily yeah anyway but they were horrible <laughs> but anyway uh yeah they have so many lawsuits against them you can just google it um what? i am
0: absolutely like, googling
1: it right now yeah yeah wait why why um, yeah. is it so horrible Just inside. um, The
2: the workplace bullying was tremendous. Um, They forced us to wear stilettos for like nine, 10-hour shifts. uh, Yeah, and then red lipstick, lingerie. We had to sexualize ourselves in front of customers in order to make sales. Um, I didn't mind the outfit personally. I just kind of drew the line at I can't change into my flats yet because my manager might drop by and fire me. So it's like, yeah, all places have a uniform, but it was just taken to like a next level extreme. Um, and also, the um, the incentives like you could get fired if you didn't make enough money, and they wouldn't tell you why. At least some companies are clear. They're like, you have to make this budget, but they would just, or if you weren't hot enough, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, my God. or if you don't have enough followers on Instagram, stuff like that. Yeah. What? Yeah, because they used us as props to sell the stuff. Um, yeah, it's quite messed. But they have some really shady lingerie and sex toy. Um, they've, they've, there used to be a boutique who would house the, like a boutique, as you might know, like has other brands. So that's how they started. And it was great. They, they, they would have all these Australian um, like designers who just starting from scratch and like the amazing stuff. And then they just slowly started to make their own stuff but ripped off all their designs, ripped Mm -hmm. off all their everything and didn't give them credit and denied it when they got taken to court. Um, Yeah. So, like, really a shitstorm. But um, all of that to say it introduced my love of talking about sex to people. Yeah. So it's the one good thing that happened from there.
1: (laughs) So so this working in that company kind of inspired Mm -hmm. you to get into sex education.
2: Yeah, I think so, because I realized I was good at it and that I didn't have a lot of barriers for shame that a lot of people have um, for whatever reason. Um, And I just, I'm really good at it and I really like doing it. And I just, I find it like the best way I I know how to connect to people.
0: Yeah. And you started doing that in Melbourne and then you went back to Auckland or how'd that plan out? Yeah.
2: I came back here um, and then I wanted to open my own um, cafe, bar, sex store, bookshop thing. Like every queer has always wanted to do. Like I'm not alone. (laughs) Then I found this amazing course called the Institute of Somatic Sexology. And they're actually based on, that branch is based in Brisbane. So I did a two-year Um, two different degrees um, with them. So one year each. And that was, yeah, helped me become a sex educator for adults, which is teaching them a somatic sex educator, which teaches people how to connect better to their bodies as opposed to just doing talk therapy, which is like your head and your mind and your thoughts and your emotions. But somatic takes into account the whole body. And we live in a time where people are not very connected to their bodies and you know, breathing, movement, sound, all of these things can help you have a better connection, not just to other people, but to yourself so that you can be better with other people sexually or otherwise.
0: Yeah. Holy shit. That's so interesting. And now you're like putting this social justice lens on it and being like, going to be a social worker, going to bring this to the party. We need to fix a bunch of stuff. I'm going to tear it down from the inside.
2: Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. Oh my God, you just made me so pumped because I'm writing this really dry assignment. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this?
0: Oh, that's right. <laughs> there it is. That's why you're doing Thank it. You. Thank Can you. Me.
1: Can you talk to me about the link between social work and sex education?
2: For me, I, I know that sex ed is still not great. And I know that's true for a lot of people our age and younger still who still haven't gotten the sex education they deserve in schools. And I think the avenue that needs to be taken, because currently there are a lot of different um, smaller grassroots organizations that do a lot of really good work here in, in Aotearoa, but schools outsource to them when they need that, when they want that. So it means that the schools that already value it and prioritize it are gonna be, you know, looking to make those changes. But it's currently in in policy right now, sexuality education is mandatory. And yet there are schools that do not uh, do it. (laughs) Uh, So technically they're breaking the law, but nobody seems to care. And there's ample sexuality education guides that have been developed. I think the latest one by this uh, academic, Katie Fitzpatrick. And she like did this beautiful guide and nobody, like no, most people don't even know it exists, even though it's part of the health education curriculum. <laughs> so what's up? So I figured the best way to go about it is to attack it through the education sector, not through creating another program that is outsourced.
0: I feel like I don't know that much about gender roles in Bangladesh, but like, do you feel pressure to fit into them? How does it, I guess, how does it play out while you're there?
2: I think, because when I'd go back to Bangladesh to visit like, like I said, it's a Muslim country. Gender roles are very strict. Um, and when I was coming out as not just queer, but as non-binary, I found it really difficult clothing-wise mm-hmm. over there. So when I'd go back to visit my parents, like wearing the girl's stuff, technically it's like not that different to the guy's stuff. All of it just looks like baggy pants along long tunic thing and a scarf like literally it's the same for guys <laughs> it's the same for you know as, at least with like um the mainstream people who aren't wearing the more and more traditional stuff or women who are wearing saris like married women wear saris anyway and so but but there is subtle differences and wearing the girls what just made me feel so dysphoric in my body and yuck and so i started wearing um The guy's stuff and my dad was weirdly okay with that. I don't think he, I don't know what, why he was okay with that. As long as my boobs and my butt are covered, I think he didn't really care, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, but now I'm thinking about it and now I'm feeling a lot more secure in my gender identity and like comfortable femininity in my non-binary-ness that I think if I went back, I think I'd be okay just doing the thing because for me it goes race gender (laughs) you know like oh yeah this is a podcast my my hand was higher for race (laughs) (laughs) it's a hierarchy (laughs) it's a hierarchy yeah so I think that's more important sometimes but not always like sometimes you do have to fight for that stuff but sometimes I think culture does take
1: precedence in some scenarios so yeah yeah, I think yeah. it's something that we talk about all the time. Um, it's just the, the kind of balancing act, but also mm. we are so many things. I am not just biracial. And mm. and also the reality of being biracial is being, at least from my experience, being very good at compartmentalising, code switching, fitting in, making yeah. myself a little chameleon that just is able to, to be part of many, many worlds. Yeah. Sometimes it's a great That's thing, that, yeah. sometimes it's a bad thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, sometimes to my yeah. own detriment.
1: <laughs> exactly. I'm interested mm. in how this has played out in some of your artistic practice and some of the stuff we were talking about in your bio, to be honest. I I want to know about it all. Can you start by talking <laughs> to us about your theatre show?
2: Um. So my show is called Perfect Shade and – the line is (laughs) we are writing (laughs) Um, that down (laughs) writing it down um I don't think I'm gonna bring it back because I think I've said goodbye to it it's about uh, colorism in South Asia specifically um and how I'm very fair and how my privileges have been around um my light skin and how that has been a privilege in so many scenarios that like I acknowledge that but at the same time it's been very um what's the word when you're not seen as what you are there's a word for it. it like it creates that invisibility for your own people you know like I never I never get into an uber and the guy is like oh yeah your name matches your face he's always like oh Sarita, it's a very Indian name and I'm like do I not look Indian too and he goes no and I'm like tear silent tear one silent (laughs) tear and then we have a big quarter about it in the uber anyway so the show is about colorism and um i used some music that i'd made and um poetry and it was like a like an amalgamation of different stories and feelings i've had around race And I had three voiceovers from these three amazing um, women who gave me some of their story um, about their history with colorism. So I um, put that into the show as well. Um, And yeah, it basically is just like a big diary entry of how I feel in terms of race and gender and sexuality. It was kind of a celebration, kind of a question mark. (laughs) Yeah.
1: How Yeah. How do you sit with that? fair skinnedness because I mm. assume that or, or as you've said it is seen as a really positive thing mm. and that's obviously linked to colonization and this like yeah <laughs> appreciation yeah. of whiteness so mm. how does that sit with you
2: yes exactly so I I touched on this in the show um part of my research for the show was delving into was fair skin cool before colonization, um, in South Asia. So, Oh God, it's just, I couldn't access as many things as I wanted to access because it's just, yeah, there's not much you can put your hands on in Aotearoa about South Asian histories. Like you can try, but like you have to really delve. So what I, the, the show was centered around the song called Krishna Koli. And it's a song about this girl who's so beautiful, despite the fact that she's so black. And I know, I know. And it's by like a really like acclaimed Bunkerly writer, <laughs> but um, you can see the song in different ways. Like you can read it like that, or you can read it as he was championing championing her rights, even though she was dark-skinned at the time when dark skin was not cool um, and being like, she's beautiful. Yes, despite the fact she's black, I think she's beautiful. There's more to her than that. Um, So like I was kind of figuring out what the song meant. And in my research, I found that Krishna, um, the name, one of the meanings actually means dark or black. So when he was painted, like when he looked, when he's blue in all those pictures that you see Krishna being blue, the blue is like a depiction of how black he was so he was revered as like this champion of love and gender and all of these like embodying all these beautiful things and how did we go from a society that reveres a black god to uh, pumping out fair and lovely uh, a really toxic skin bleaching chemical that i know is not just um You know, in South Asian cultures, a lot of cultures use skin lightening stuff. But, um, yeah, we touched on that in the show as well.
0: And how important (laughs) was it for you to get this out into the world? Yeah, it's kind of
2: also scary. I had to put a line into the show to be like, now look here, white people. um, This is not an opportunity for you to go and talk about colorism in a really derogatory way and be like, oh, my God, see, even they're racist. Um, like to each other um so I had to literally put it in there and I was like how do I put it in there artistically oh I could just say it I could just say it the show is my show I can just say it um and I said it's more of an opportunity for you to go away and talk about maybe your privileges but on your own communities not with brown people
0: (laughs) don't make brown people do emotional labor for you yeah yeah
2: So that was quite scary to be like, I'm putting all this info out here. You're really lucky that I'm telling you all this stuff. Please don't abuse this.
1: Was it a one-person show?
2: It was a one-person show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm still scared thinking about it. I love it.
1: How did – because we're creating this podcast and essentially it is just – Deep conversations with a whole bunch of strangers and some people that we know. Um, I'm interested in how your creative process worked and and how you kind of grappled with dealing with all of this deeply personal stuff and putting it on a stage for consumption, like you said, by potentially vaguely racist people, but also Mm. people that are going to take so much from it. What was my process? Yeah. What was your creative process?
2: I have no idea I've never made art before (laughs) like I didn't know what I was doing I just I had I think I wasn't so wrapped up in like the stuff that normally freaks people out about making art because the story is not really mine it is mine but it's not just about me if it was just about me I think I'd be really nervous but because it's about much more than me but I used myself as the background to tell the story from I think it was quite clear what the process should be it should be centering people's voices that experience this that's why I wanted to have people's voiceovers in the show um and centering a story that I privilege from and so I should be the one doing the mahi and doing the work like to talk about it because it's not as difficult for me to do it does that make sense like it's yeah it's like hard for me to talk about stuff that impacts me but colorism doesn't really impact me so I should be kind of taking that bullet and telling the story but
0: yeah speaking of creative processes body house tell us about body house
2: oh just you know the best thing I've ever done with my life and probably ever will (laughs) It's like I'm so, like I feel like I peaked. <laughs> I've peaked. My life is, is never, will, never will get better. It is. Every time I think about it, I, I am just happy, and I feel stoked to be in a world where that was possible. It's a queer strip club night that uh, myself and Kaya Dove and Nikolai Talamahina um, started. Have your parents seen any of your <laughs> art? <laughs> Oh, uh, okay. So I made the mistake of like uh, I sent my mom like an interview I did, kind of like a podcasty interview where I talked about Body House because I was so proud of it, and I was like, "Look, mom, I'm making spaces for people that need spaces for marginalized people. I hate that word, but like for people who need it, like you did, you know." And I think in the interview, I like maybe alluded to like when, like like wanting to have body hair like, leg hair and stuff like that if, if I was to be a stripper. But I didn't out myself. But, like, I think she may have picked up on something, so she wasn't stoked about that. But um, I, they don't live in New Zealand, but the, the, they happened to be in New Zealand the week my show was on, Perfect Shade, and they did not come. So on purpose, like, they didn't – I don't think they could have – the poster was me in drag, even though the show didn't have any drag – but they couldn't handle the picture of me with a beard and full Bengali outfit. You know, it was too much. It was too confronting. So they did not come for which I will never forgive them because they would have fallen in love with me in a whole different way or hated me. So maybe not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like they're depriving themselves of the real you.
2: Oh, totally. And that's, yeah, it's their decision if they want to have that relationship with me or not. It's here Mm -hmm. when they want it, but. If not, it's cool, man. I got things to do.
1: Mm -hmm. How how does it play out with your brother?
2: Um, My brother is a sweetheart and, like, literally, like my twin, except that he's four years older. Um, But I think we have very different lives. And I think the older we get, the more we realize we are very different people. Um, But yeah, we don't really, I don't think he knows what I do. He knows I did put on a show and I don't think he knows about the strip club. <laughs> um, I just stopped telling them about stuff because they didn't get as excited as I thought they would. So I just told people who I thought would appreciate it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Why do you hate the word marginalized?
2: Oh, I don't hate it. I just think it sounds yuck. It's just like, oh, if it's good for a funding application, fucking use it. But like, the mouth I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the mouthfeel of marginalized. It just seems like something a white savior would say before they try and help you. <laughs> how, do
0: you how do you feel about person of color? How do you feel about that? Do you describe yourself as a person oh, of color? Oh,
2: man. Yeah. It is just like another thing, isn't it? It's just another lo- lumpy box. There's I think a friend was talking to me about it a while ago and they were like, "I don't like it." And I, I, don't, I don't know what to do about it because it's not like... It's useful in some scenarios. It's just still another way to other yourself from white, white being the norm. Yep. But I do see where it's useful And when you are trying to be that chameleon that you were talking about and navigating in spaces where you're trying to create, say you're trying to create a show and you're trying to say which kinds of people you want to be in the show. It is what you're saying essentially is we don't want white people or centering people who aren't white. And I have no issue saying that, but a lot of people wouldn't get the funding that they need if they said that, because they're, talking to white people so i i think it's important to acknowledge when you need to be safe and use those sorts of language that maybe in five ten years we'll we will not be saying poc maybe we'll be saying something different so i think for the meantime i just don't really have anything else for it it's like non-binary i don't think i'm non-binary i don't i don't like the pronoun they i don't like the pronoun them it's not really who i am i'm just a person so like those are just placeholders to let other people know what you're trying to say Uh, can i ask you guys a question yes how do you identify with your whiteness
0: oh that's it's really it's really really complex I spent a lot of time wanting to be white, like a lot, a lot of time growing up in Invercargill, single parent household um, with the white caregiver. Um, I spent a lot of time pushing down my mouldiness and, and crushing myself to fit into this box of whiteness and mm-hmm. contorting myself, you know, being the token brown friend, leaning into that, um, holding my territory over other brown people, moldy people, um, avoiding them so that I didn't get found out that I wasn't mm-hmm. enough. Um, so yeah, whiteness in me, is really fraught. Um, and I think I can, I definitely use it to my advantage, um, here and there, but especially in my career. Eh. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's my white identity. Oh, whoa it's yeah it's really it's really complex and i i don't i don't like it mm. <laughs> you know um i i don't want to identify as white um but i mean i i i am i am i am pakia and and i want to be close to my mum and that is something that we can you know bond over i guess not bond over because I'm brown but you know like yeah Yeah. we have we have that white culture that like white New Zealand culture in common um I guess but
1: what about you Kate I think I similarly spent such a long time pushing down my otherness that now I feel as if I have to almost make up for it uh and I wonder how it plays out in some of my friendships for instance because I feel as if I am a hundred percent leaning into thinking about race and identity way more than I probably was five years ago to be honest Mm -hmm. ten years ago like it's a lifelong journey and I'm I'm just going through different stages of course and so I wonder for my friends that I've known for a decade whether they're a bit shocked by this. <laughs> and when I say my friends, I mean my white friends. Uh, mm-hmm. They're a bit shocked that this is this is now something. And obviously, we're creating this podcast. We're literally talking about it every week. I I am already thinking about it all the time, but I'm thinking about it even more now. And yeah. so I think it's probably quite weird for. That some of them to be honest and I think so much of my learning about race for instance has come from to be honest podcasts and other podcasts that I've been listening to or books that I've been reading but all of that is a very internal thing that I just me myself have been doing when I'm riding my bike to work or when I'm sitting on the train and so it's not necessarily something that I have been until more recently really like hitting people in the face with and I Mm -hmm. think that a lot of my I I think in a way um my feminism was kind of a gateway into me thinking more critically about identity in general and thinking about everything else and so I think probably for some of my friends are like oh five years ago it was feminism, now it's race, what will it mm. be next? But no one has actually mm. said that to me. This is my perception of, of what they would be perceiving in me. How do you identify with your whiteness? I've been waiting for, because I spent,
2: like like you, Maria, the, most of my life thinking I was white and benefiting from it so much uh, and yet not quite being white and not really knowing what's up. <laughs> like why is the world not the same for me as it is for my friend um yep and then going and making like a whole bunch of art about it uh it was like my renaissance (laughs) and then (laughs) (laughs) which is funny because the renaissance was white um made a whole bunch of art about it and then Now I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for something to like make me feel good about being white again. Like, and I don't think that's going to happen, you know? Like, I I feel like it's going to come full circle. And I'm looking at myself, like your friend, you think your friends see you. Like this hyper activist, hyper political, um, just person who can never have fun, basically. Who just ruins the dinner all the time. And um, I used to run a book club called Ruin the Dinner Book Club. (laughs) That was my favorite name for something um i love um, that so much (laughs) feel free to take it
1: (laughs) i fucking love it because i have ruined so many dinners yeah yeah
2: Yeah, and i mean dinner is not sacred man like it's all good Hmm. um so i feel like maybe part of me thinks in order to be a full human being i need to like accept my whiteness or something however (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if that's true because half of my dna colonized the other half of my dna and this idea that like equality is deserving for the two parts of me is not actually true because until poc to use that fun word have the same privileges And life experiences, life expectancy, health outcomes, income disparities, housing inequalities, all of these things, if until everybody is actually equal, I don't find the need for myself to equally prioritize my white side and my brown side.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to touch on before we finish up or anything that you wanted to tell and we haven't given you space to do so yet?
2: Mm, just that being biracial is like a, such a huge strength and that I think we're super heroes kind of. Like we've got to see the shit that people go through and yet maybe not experience all of it because of our white privileges and that means we kind of have a responsibility to do some mahi to do some work that we are able to do obviously do what you can do but for our psc pals <laughs> who don't have access to our white privilege that we have yeah we would just have to do some more work i think Um, and enjoy being able to access all these different spaces um, and not see it as, like, the soul-crushing responsibility, but something you can also enjoy and learn from and really love and always try and make friends with other biracial people because it will give you life.
0: (laughs) You have fucking nailed this interview. (laughs) Thank you so much for bringing your whole self to this Zoom call We're super, super grateful. Um, And, yeah, just have a beautiful afternoon and look after yourself.
2: Thank you. You guys have been really, really lovely. Thanks for providing a space where I can feel safe to chat
1: openly.
0: Thank you so
1: much for listening to Being
0: Biracial. This podcast is hosted, edited, produced, and all the other things by us, Kate Robinson and Maria Bert Moringer, just two wahini out here
1: making a podcast. The music that you're listening to is by Green Twins, and this is their incredible song, Take It Slow. You can find it on Spotify.
0: BB was developed with the support of Footscray Community Arts through the generous use of their podcast dungeon here on the lands of the Kulin Nation.
1: Our project is also supported through the Maribyrnong City Council Community Grants Program and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. We also want to thank Auspicious Arts for all of their help. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We literally couldn't create this podcast without all of you. We love hearing from
0: you. You can find us on Instagram at Podcast or send us an email at beingbiracialpodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could leave
1: us a review. That is one of the best ways to support us at the moment. And if you loved this episode, come on, why not subscribe? Just do it. Bye. Bye.